One of the most persistent and pernicious knocks against the Christian faith is that it's too exclusive. That is too narrow in its view of who gets to go to heaven. That it offers little or no help to the billions of people in the world who practice other faiths or no faith at all. Now, this critique that Christianity is too exclusive surfaced again recently in a very public way during Senator Bernie Sanders' questioning of a nominee for a White House uh, position, uh, Russell Vaught. Now, Vaught is an outspoken Christian, and so Sanders accused him of Islamophobia based on his belief that Muslim people are spiritually lost apart from Christ. Now, if you look up Islamophobia in um, an online dictionary, it will describe Islamophobia as dislike, fear, hostility, or prejudice towards people of the Muslim faith. Now, Vaught tried to defend himself, tried to articulate his love and respect for all people, including those of the Muslim faith, but he was pretty much drowned out by Senator Sanders' outrage. Now, this accusation that Christianity is too exclusive is persistent in the sense that it keeps coming up in conversations with people who are skeptical about the Christian faith or even curious about the Christian faith. And it's pernicious because it portrays Christian people as intolerant, uh, unloving, and even hateful towards people of other faiths or no faith at all. And so those outside the church want to know how Christianity can be good for the world when it seems to exclude so many people. And people inside the church want to know how we can overcome this misperception and demonstrate to the world that we are for them and that we love them, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, or no matter what they believe or don't believe. Is Christianity really good for the world? This is the final week of our spring series um, for the good of the world. Now, next week, we're going to begin our summer series, and uh, we're calling that first summer series Life Punctuated. We're going to be looking at characters in the, in the Bible and learning how their lives, like our lives, are often punctuated by seasons or circumstances that provide opportunities to meet God. This is going to be a fun and enlightening series, exclamation point. Okay, so that starts next week. But this week, we are finishing up our spring series. We've been looking at our mission statement, discovering life with God for the good of the world. We're reminding ourselves that life with God, as wonderful as it is, is not just for our benefit, it's for the benefit of others. We weren't just saved from something, we were saved for something. And so week by week, we've been walking through the various venues or circles of life, trying to learn what it means to be good in those different places. So we began with the good of our hearts, learned about surrendering our hearts to the Spirit. Then the good of our homes, and we talked about walking and talking authentically our faith with the people in our family. Then we looked about the good of our neighborhood, and we talked about opening our hearts and homes to the people around us. Pastor Dave actually coined a new word that week, not hospitality, but gospeltality. It's not bad, actually. And then we talked about the good of our work, and we learned about depending on the Spirit and the power of Jesus' name. Last week, we talked about the good of the earth and how we enjoy and care for it in partnership with God. So each of these circles are rich with opportunities to, to be good for the world, and we may revisit some of them next year. 
But today we want to finish up as we come to the final circle and think about the good of the nations. And that's certainly an appropriate topic on a day we send off our CCLE teams across the city and around the world. So we believe that our life with God isn't just good for those of us who are near to us and like us. It's good for people who are far away. And it's good for people who seem to be far from God. How can that be? How can the Christian faith be good for people who don't embrace it? And how can people, Christian people convince the world that we really are for them and that God really is for them? So we try to answer those questions. Let's go to the final chapters of the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22. Now, in that book, as you know, the Apostle John gets a revelation, a series of visions about God's unfolding work in human history. And in Revelation 21 and 22, we come to the end of human history as we know it, as John receives a vision of the life to come. And there are some remarkable things that we're going to see. So let's jump in at chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new and earth. For the first heaven and earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, John's language takes us very intentionally back to Genesis 1 and 2, to the beginning of earth's story when God created the heavens and the earth. And we know from our study of those chapters that God created the earth in order that it, it might flourish. He put human beings in the, in the world and he told them to be fruitful and to multiply. So God envisioned a, an earth full of people to know and love. And he asked those people to care for that earth, to, to tend the earth, so that it would become the beautiful, spacious, abundant, prosperous, communal place that he had in mind. But we also know that everything went wrong in Genesis chapter 3, when that first man and woman, like the rest of us, chose to go their own way instead of God's way, to do life without God rather than life with God. And that decision led to all kinds of, of disappointment and disasters as it played out down the generations of human history and across the earth as people spread out and formed nations. And so at a certain point, God intervened. He called one person, Abraham, and began to form one people, Israel, through whom he would redeem the whole earth and bring people back to himself. But once again, human beings failed to fulfill that mission. The nation of Israel wandered from their relationship with God. They failed to bring the nations in. And so God intervened again, this time sending his very own son to die for all of humanity's failures and to rise from the dead and offer new life, eternal life, to all who would believe in his son, Jesus Christ. John talks about this in his gospel when he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not die but have eternal life. God so loved the world, not just Israel, the world, that whoever believes, whoever, wherever, whenever, however, a person turns to God in Christ, God is prepared to offer forgiveness and eternal life through the work of his son, Jesus. And for 2,000 years, 
People from every nation, tribe, language, and culture on earth have been discovering life with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And together, those believers have formed what we call the church, the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus in the world, carrying out his work of doing good, bringing the kingdom, and announcing eternal life to all who would believe. And in spite of some wandering and some serious mistakes, the church has, for the most part, been remarkably effective in proclaiming that good news and bringing the goodness of the kingdom. At this point, about one-third of the earth's population, that's over two billion people, profess some sort of allegiance to Jesus Christ. And there are believers in just about every nation and almost every people group on earth. Christianity is by far the largest and most diverse faith community on the face of the earth. But that's not all. Not only have millions, even billions of people come to embrace this faith, but millions more have been blessed by the good work of God's people as they have scattered throughout the world to do good in Jesus' name. Orphanages, hospitals, schools, universities, health clinics, microenterprise, microfinance, homeless shelters, food banks, community centers, daycares, on and on it goes, farms, wells, so many good works done by God's people all over the world. Think about our own CCLE teams and the work they'll be doing, bringing clean water to a community in Ecuador, doing construction projects and sprucing up neighborhoods and building friendships downtown Boston and Philadelphia, Construction projects, vacation Bible schools in Guatemala and the DR and Haiti and Mexico, providing school supplies and medical help and dental care to orphanages in Moldova, encouraging and equipping church leaders for holistic work in the nation of Malawi. That's just one church. This church, for 40 years, we've been sending people all over the world to do good in Jesus' name, and we're doing it again this summer. Nicholas Kristof is an award-winning journalist famous for championing causes of justice and freedom and compassion all over the world. Now, Kristof is not a believer in Christ, and he can be very critical of the church at times. But again and again, Kristof has pointed out that Christian people and Christian organizations are by far the most devoted, generous, courageous, sacrificial, and effective doers of good in the world, committed to humanitarian causes all across the world. Again and again, he reminds us that in the world's neediest places and in the, uh, in the most dangerous places, Christian people are typically the first ones in and the last ones to leave if they ever leave at all. All this to say that Christianity has been and still is good for the world. Not only when it comes to proclaiming new life in Christ to all people everywhere, but when it comes to giving people a glimpse of God's kingdom, of his love and compassion and goodness and mercy by the good works that we do in Jesus' name. The church of Jesus Christ has done more good, been more in more places, for more people, in more ways than any other organization, any other movement, any other religious faith on the face of the earth. So 
So yes, Christianity is good for the world, has been, and still is. But even with all that good, all that good that's been done, all that good that is being done, this world is still a far cry from the world God had in mind when he created it. It's a far cry from the world we all would like to live in and our children and grandchildren to live in. Peace and justice and freedom and flourishing continue to elude millions and millions of the world's people. And millions and millions more have never yet had an opportunity to hear and receive the good news of Christ. And so along with the Apostle John, we look forward to a day when God himself will intervene again, when he himself will come and, and bring to earth the kingdom in all of its fullness, when he will finish the work that he has begun. And that's what John is going to describe in the rest of this chapter. So let me just walk you through it and, and prepare yourself to be amazed at what this new age is going to look like. John says, I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Notice again what we've pointed out before. Human history does not end with us going to heaven. It ends with heaven coming to us. God is not giving up on this earth he brought into existence. He is going to remake it according to his original intentions. And his intention is that it would be a place of beauty, a place of abundance, and a place of relationship, human beings with one another and all of humanity with their creator. And so one day, God himself will finish that work. One day, everything that's wrong with the world will be put right. In this city, in this heavenly city coming down out of heaven, there will be no more shootings at softball games. There will be no more high-rises burning down. There will be no more trucks careening down crowded sidewalks. Not in this city. Everything that's wrong will be put right. And then John goes on to describe a little more of what this city will be like. Verse 9. One of the seven angels carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Notice how beautiful this city is. There's no grit and grime. There's no polluted air. There's no dirty water. There's no crumbling brick. There's no rusting steel. John says this city is as beautiful and brilliant as a rare gem held up to the sunlight. It's beautiful. Perhaps the most beautiful city the world's ever seen. Notice something else, verse 12. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, 
three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. Now, this is interesting. Why pay so much attention to the gates of the city, to their number and their placement? Well, it turns out in the ancient world, especially in the, in the ancient Roman Empire, walled cities typically had one gate, only one, for security reasons, of course because the gate of a city was the place the city was most vulnerable. It was where enemies and undesirables would find their place in. And so most cities would have one gate. If a city had multiple gates, it would have them all on one side. So again, it could control who came in and where they came from. But notice this city has 12 gates. It is ridiculously accessible. And notice that the gates are on all four sides, north, south, east, and west, suggesting that this city is accessible from all corners of the earth. It's more accessible than, 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 than any city you could possibly imagine. So the city's beautiful and accessible. Next, notice how big it is. The angel who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. This city is nearly 1,500 miles long on every side. Now, just for comparison, the city of Babylon, one of the greatest cities of the ancient world, was at most nine miles on a side. This one is 1,500 miles on all four sides. Not only that, this city is 1,500 miles high. Mount Everest, by comparison, is six miles high. 1,500 miles high. Now, obviously, these numbers are symbolic, but what they're telling us is that this city is thousands of times bigger than any city the world has ever seen. So there's room for a lot of people in this city, more people than we could possibly imagine. And then notice how inclusive this city is. Verse 24. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. So all the nations of the earth will be blessed by this city, and all the nations will bring their splendor into it which means that all the different people groups of the earth, with, with their unique expressions of the image of God, each of these cultures will bring their, their dialect, their customs, their complexion, bring it into the city to help shape the character and the beauty of the city. And notice something else. The gates of this city will never be shut so apparently, these gates are not meant to keep people out. They're meant to let people in. You see what John is describing? The most beautiful, most expansive, most diverse, most accessible, most inclusive city the world has ever seen, more than we could ever imagine. And anyone from anywhere is invited into it. And everyone from everywhere is invited into it. Fling wide, ye heavenly gates. Bring them in. Friends, I think we are going to be very surprised 
by how many people there are in the kingdom of God. And I think we're going to be very surprised at how varied are the journeys that led them there. Surprised by how many people are there in the kingdom of God and how varied the journeys that led them there. Let there be no mistake. God loves all people. And he wants all people everywhere to come into his kingdom. And he is prepared to do whatever it takes to bring people into that kingdom, including the sending and sacrifice of his only son. There's only one thing God will not do, as I understand the scriptures. He will not force anyone into his kingdom. Look at verse 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There are and always will be, apparently, people who simply prefer not to experience life with God who prepare to live, would rather live life on their own terms and by their own wits than to receive the forgiveness and grace that God offers in Christ and the freedom to become the people they were meant to be. And if a person doesn't want to live with God in this life, then God will not force them to live with him in the life to come. So I'm not teaching universalism here. I'm not suggesting that everyone gets in no matter what. And I'm not teaching that because I, I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches and because I believe that God has given human beings freedom. Same kind of freedom he gave to that first man and woman to, to live with God in the garden or to live without God in the wilderness. And time and time and time again, people choose the wilderness. But whenever and wherever and however a person turns to God in faith and repentance, God is ready and willing to offer forgiveness and eternal life through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Whoever Wherever, whenever, however. You don't have to dress a certain way. You don't have to speak a certain language. You don't have to worship in a certain kind of a building. You don't have to be in a certain, live in a certain country. Whoever, wherever, whenever, however. Some years ago, the great evangelist Billy Graham was finishing up a series of lectures at Harvard's uh, JFK School of Government. At the end, it was open for question and answer, and, and a questioner asked, Mr. Graham, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Doesn't that mean that all non-Christians are going to hell? Graham replied, God will judge us all, a God of love and mercy and justice. And I'm glad God has that job and not me. <laughs> the questioner pressed harder. Could you tell us what you think God is going to say? To which Graham replied, well, God doesn't consult me on things like that. <laughs> is that a great answer? 
There's only one person who knows whose names are written in that Lamb's book of life, and that's the Lamb. And only the Lamb knows how those names got there. How much faith does a person need to be saved? We don't really know. The Bible talks about faith of a mustard seed. That's not very much faith. How much does a person need to know and understand before they turn to God in repentance and faith? We don't really know. Is it possible for a person to be saved through Jesus' work even if they haven't heard of Jesus' work? As C.S. Lewis and some others have suggested, we don't know. As Dr. Graham suggests, there's a lot we don't know. So we want to be very careful about making a pronouncement about who's in and who's out. Like I said, I think we're going to be real surprised. What we do know and what the Bible does tell us is that there is one sure and simple way to receive forgiveness and the gift of eternal life, and that's the call on the name of Jesus. And that's why Christian people go to the ends of the earth and to the heart of the city and across the street to share the good news of God's love with everyone we meet and to offer someone even a glimpse of the goodness of his kingdom. So we might sum it up this way. We're good for the nations when we pray, give, and go so that people near and far get a glimpse of the kingdom. Because if people can get a glimpse of the kingdom, if they can get a taste of God's goodness, they just might open their hearts and their eyes and look for a little bit more. And Scripture tells us that whoever seeks the Lord will ever surely find him. And so when we pray for the needs of the world, when we pray for the spread of the gospel, when we pray for our partners serving around the world, that's good for the world. And when we give of our money, give through the church, give through other ministries and organizations to relieve human need and to spread the gospel, that's good for the world. And when we go across the street to our neighbors or on a CCLE trip, or when we give our entire lives to go somewhere in Jesus' name, that's good for the world. We're good for the nations when we pray, give, and go that people might get a glimpse of the kingdom. So each week in our series, we have offered a faithful practice that might help us to be a faithful presence in these various circles of our lives. And so we talked about daily surrender. We talked about table talk. Uh, we talked about extending hospitality. We talked about using less. The faithful practice we'd like to introduce for the world is the faithful practice of kingdom prayer. Kingdom prayer. Praying regularly and praying spontaneously for the needs of the world and the spread of God's good news. So in order to help us understand a little bit more about the good things that are happening around the world and how we can pray for them a little more effectively, I've asked Paul Borthwick to come and share a little bit from his perspectives as he travels the world. Would you welcome Paul as he comes up? Now, some of you know Paul and his wife, Christy, are longtime members of Grace Chapel. That's right. When we were first here, we didn't have video. We didn't have microphones. <laughs> we sat on the floor. 
Yeah, no, I don't think so. 1969. 69. Okay, longtime members of Grace Chapel. Along the way, for many years, Paul was actually a member of the Grace Chapel staff, pastor, youth pastor, and then missions pastor. Past 20 years or so, Paul has been serving with uh, Development Associates International, traveling the world, training leaders and uh, church leaders around the world and ministry leaders. Um, so, Paul, help us get a little perspective on the world today. You spend a lot of time in airplanes and around the world. Just give us a sense of kind of where you've been lately. Uh, one year ago, we were with uh, actually Grace Chapel's partner church, uh, Casa Aldebara Church in Cairo, Egypt, listening to a pastor telling us how God is using ISIS to make moderate Muslims rethink their faith wow. and whether they want a faith that goes in that direction and they're coming to Jesus mm -hmm. as wow. a result. Wow. Right? Um, in, uh, in August last year, I had the privilege of being at a conference that was sort of a foreshadowing of that city because uh, we had people from coming in from all directions, from 160 countries, wow. giving testimony of God at work in their place. So the fruit of missionaries of generations gone by is now being multiplied by people from every nation to every nation. Right, well, tell us a little bit more about that. I mean, it's easy to watch the news. We get pretty disheartened by what's happening around the yeah. world. Can you give us some signs of hope or encouragement and maybe a concern or two as we think about praying for the world? Yeah, someday I'd like to do a seminar on all the stories that don't appear on CNN or Fox. <laughs> because we tend to concentrate on the bad news. I mean, the Nepal earthquake for example, uh, April of 2015. Well, what people don't report is that the response of Christians to be a blessing to their whole nation has created in Nepal, a former Hindu kingdom, the fastest growing church in the world. Wow. What people don't tell you is that the second listed fastest growing church in the world is in Shiite Iran. That doesn't make it into the news okay. usually. <laughs> you know. And what people fail to know is that 70% of our evangelical brothers and sisters live in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And the countries of Brazil and uh, Nigeria and Korea are sending missionaries to lost places like Middle East and Boston. And Boston. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that leads to one of my concerns, is that as much as we celebrate what God's doing in the world that we live in, we also have the challenge that some two billion souls have still never even received that invitation. So that, and they live in hard places. They live in the difficult, the violent, the, the sort of oppositional places. And for Christians to go there is going to take a lot of courage. And we need to be praying, like Jesus commanded, to ask the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers. All right. Well, tell us a little more about prayer. We're talking about this practice of kingdom prayer. Can you give us some practical ways that we might try that? Well, I, as former youth pastor, I became practical really early on. And, um, and I think it's, you know, it's overwhelming to think about praying for the world. It's my full-time job, and it overwhelms me. But start your kingdom praying today, any age, any family structure, any household, you can enlarge your global praying by praying for the country on the label of your clothes. You know what I'm talking about? Irregular is not a country. I'm talking about <laughs> the made in, right? Because the global village is in your closet. And we're just doing what Jesus commanded. How's that? In, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said, when you pray, go into your closet and pray. <laughs> And, 
I put on my shirt today, made in China. So I have 1.3 billion people to pray about just by this shirt. Uh -huh. Trousers made in Bangladesh, a country that's the fourth largest Muslim country in the world. I mean, my clothes alone are giving me this burden. But, you know, you can do this with children. You can do it when you're ironing or doing the laundry, Pastor. Yeah, and, well, uh, I do laundry. Yes, yeah, yes, right, anyhow, right. pray for the country and the label of your clothes. Number two, uh, choose a focus. Choose a country. Choose an issue. Uh, choose a place that you're interested, maybe the country of your own heritage, and just learn more. Go to a place like Operation World or get their app, operationworld.org or their app, and just you can learn every country in the world and specifically how you can pray for the church in that country. And, and even connecting your prayers to, to the, uh, the, the CCLEs, the, the, the short-term teams going out. Because oftentimes they're going to places where they need prayer long after the team is home. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing I would say is, look around you. When I was a kid in the Grace Chapel youth group, we studied world religions. Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists were exotic people who were over there, someplace else. Now my pharmacist is a Sikh, my medical doctor is a Muslim, my neighbor is a Hindu, and there's communist Chinese people going to our international schools. And all that's to say, God brought them here. And, and, and when you're whether you're at the doctor's clinic or you're in some sort of office cubicle or you're at market basket, you know, when you see people who have a sign that's conspicuous to another world religion, just breathe a prayer for them. Walk around your neighborhood. God might not call you to the ends of the earth, but he might call you to the end of the street. You know, go around your cubicles and don't be creepy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Don't be creepy, weird Christians. In the name of Jesus. Just, just... Breathe a prayer. You may be praying, listen to this now, you may be praying for someone who's never been prayed for before in Jesus' name. Because God has brought them here so that they can hear this gospel message through people like you and me. So enlarge your kingdom praying. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. We do have a simple way for you to begin this practice, as we mentioned, that uh, little brochure, the prayer guide for our CCLEs. You can pick up a hard copy in the lobbies, or you can uh, download it on the app as well. Put it on the kitchen table. Put it near your Bible. Put it on the dashboard of the car and pray your way through them this summer. I want to leave you with just one final image that's just too good to miss. If you remember, back in September, we began this year's teaching journey with a study of the book of Colossians that we called Thrive. We talked about God's vision for humankind to, to flourish. And the logo for that series was an apple tree laden heavy with fruit. In the wintertime, we explored the, uh, a series that we called Roots. And if you remember, we were again inspired by the image of a tree. This time it was the image of a tree planted by streams of water bearing fruit in its season. And now here we are on the final Sunday of this teaching journey, and look at what John sees in this vision. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations." There it is, the image of a tree, the tree of life, 
The same tree that Adam and Eve forfeited when they walked away from God in that garden is now available once again. And it's unlike any tree the earth has ever seen. It's one tree, and yet it's on both sides of the river. How does that work? And not only does it bear fruit in its season, as wonderful as that is, this tree bears fruit all year long. And the fruit of that tree is for the healing of the nations. Is Christianity good for the world? You'd better believe it. Because there's only one force that can bring together this broken world, that can restore what has been fractured, that can put right what's been wrong. And that power is the love of God shown in Christ and proclaimed in word and deed by his people. So yes, we are good for the nations when we pray, give, and go that people might get a glimpse of that kingdom. Let's pray. As our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, it's possible that you've been sitting here for these moments and recognizing that you're not sure your name is written in that book of life, that you've never personally received that gift of forgiveness and eternal life through faith in Christ. I want to give you a chance to do that today by praying a simple prayer after me in your heart. And if you've already done that, then I'll invite you simply to reaffirm that decision, again, by praying along with me in your heart. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming into this world to show me the way to life. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins and rising again to offer me new and eternal life. I want to receive that forgiveness today and begin living life with you for the good of the world. May it be so, Lord, in all of our hearts and in all of the world until Jesus comes again. Amen.